So 2 Samuel 24, I'm going to read the whole chapter. And I'm reading from the NRSV. 2 Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, count the people of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the commanders of the army who were with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and take a census of the people, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab said to the king, May, your, may the Lord your God increase the number of the people a hundredfold, while the eyes of my lord the king can still see it. But why does my lord the king want to do this? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to take a census of the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aroah and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on towards Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Joab reported to the king the number of those who had been recorded. In Israel there were 800,000 soldiers able to draw the sword, and those of Judah were 500,000. But afterward, David was stricken to the heart because he had numbered the people. David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, I pray you, take away the guilt of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. When David rose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, choose one of them and I'll do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, he asked him, Shall three years of famine come to you on your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to the one who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from that morning until the appointed time. And 70,000 of the people died from Dan to Beersheba. But when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented concerning the evil and said to the angel who was bringing destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. The angel of the Lord was then by the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was destroying the people, he said to the Lord, I alone have sinned and I alone have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. That day God came to David and said to him, go up and erect, and, sorry, did I say God? <laughs> that day Gad, <laughs> yeah, that could be confusing. That day Gad came to David, that's his seer, and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. Following Gad's instructions, David went up as the Lord had commanded. When Araunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Araunah went out and prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. Araunah said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor 
from you in order to build an altar to the Lord so that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Araunah said to the king, uh, said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the thresh, threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Araunah gives to the king. And Araunah said to the king, May the Lord your God respond favorably to you. But the king said to Araunah, No, but I will buy them from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and burnt, offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being. So the Lord answered his supplication for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Not fair. Not fair, is it? It's not fair the way God plays it being God sometimes. Do you know what I mean? I sometimes feel like I'm put in these situations where I'm tempted to sin and then I'm punished for it. God allows that to happen, surely. It's not fair. It doesn't seem right. And this text that we read this morning is a perfect example of this. It's there in black and white. David is urged by God to sin and then he's punished for it. The whole people of Israel are punished for it. Now, I kind of understand when we're back in the Exodus and we're looking at Egypt that God hardened Pharaoh's heart because the Egyptians were oppressing the Israelites and then the Israelites are released and the Egyptians are punished and even there it seemed a bit wrong but Pharaoh's the bad guy, and the Egyptians are the baddies, right? So it kind of seems okay. But in this text, David, the king of Israel, has God urging him to take a census, and then David and all the Israelites are punished. Not fair. It doesn't seem right. I think we better pray. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your insight this morning in understanding this text. But more importantly, we ask your spirit to be present here with us. I pray even now that you would be opening our hearts and our lives to you and to your word. The word that you will speak to each person here differently. I pray that it wouldn't just be our minds that seek understanding, but our lives that genuinely seek transformation. And we invite you into this space to do the work that only you can do among us. Amen. This morning's text is tough for a few reasons. Um, but I think top of the list certainly would be that God appears to cause David to sin and then he appears to punish that very sin. How do we relate to a God like this? Well, I think also that this text demands two things of us. First of all, that we read closely, that we pay close attention to detail as we're reading. And secondly, that we understand this text in the light of other texts, in, in the light of all the scripture. In other words, again, because we've seen this principle before, we have to keep the forest in view as, as we're looking at the bark on this particular tree. And by doing that, hopefully we will come to some understanding. And that's often the case. 
um, when you come to a tough text, we sometimes assume that the answers have got to be nearby. They've got to be there in there somewhere. But sometimes you have to go for a wander through the strange world of the Bible looking for clues. So let's begin by looking closely at what's happening here. The first half of verse 1. And again, the anger of the Lord burned with Israel, or the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now that's just half the verse, but did you notice something there? Before we go any further, already a couple of questions are raised. Why is, ang why is Yahweh so angry with Israel? And why does the narrator say, and again? It's the first word there. That is, what are the previous reasons for God's anger with Israel? Well, if you look up the phrase, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, as I may have done this week, you will find it smattered throughout Israel's history. Once in Exodus, six times in Numbers, four times in Deuteronomy, twice in Joshua, four times in Judges, twice in Samuel, once in Kings, and it continues on into the prophets. The anger of the Lord was kindled against them. Time and time and time again, Yahweh is angry with Israel. His anger is kindled against them. And why? Every time it's the same thing. Same root cause every time. Because Israel chooses not to trust in Yahweh, their God. Very much like us. Israel chooses to trust in other gods, in their own wealth their own resources, their self-image, their own power, and so on. Now, that's helpful for us, isn't it? Because the story doesn't begin with God commanding David to take a census. It, it begins, in fact, with the Lord being angry with Israel. Again, it begins with Israel's failure to trust. Again. It begins with broken covenant again. And that changes things a bit. And we're only halfway through verse 1. So let's keep going. This, the first half, half of verse 1, the anger of the Lord burned with Israel again. Second half of verse 1, and he incited David on account of them or because of them, against them, saying, go, count or number Israel and Judah. Now that verb, incite, God incited David, it can be translated to urge, to uh, mislead, to provoke, to prompt, to persuade, even to seduce. It's a strong verb. It's not often used of God. But here, God is urging. He's provoking. He's prompting. He's even misleading David to take a census because God is very angry with David? No. With Israel. God is angry with Israel. So let's just take this opening verse because it sets the scene for everything that follows and let's try and unpack the logic here. One, God is angry with Israel in a way that he has been many times before when Israel fails to trust him. Two, in every instance when Israel has put faith in something other than God, there's been a consequence. So there's probably going to be another one. And three, 
there's a direct correlation in this opening verse between God being angry with Israel and him misleading David or prompting David to take this census, a census that would lead to a consequence for Israel's sin. Now, it may bother some of us that we don't know exactly what Israel did wrong here. Um, But, as I said, if we look at all these examples, in fact, if you look at every example of sin in the Old Testament, and feel free to do that this week, I suggest to you that the, the root cause of all those sins will be the same. It's always a lack of trust in God. A lack of trust in God the root of all evil. Now, the next few verses tell of David giving Joab the order to go. Count the people. And Joab's response makes it very clear that this is not a good idea. It's not a good thing to do. As a side note, Joab is not usually the voice of reason if you read through the books of Samuel. He's a hothead. He's a man of action. He's the one you speak to if you want someone like Uriah. You go to Joab and he'll get that job done. But here Joab is saying to David, are you sure about this? And that speaks volumes. In verse 3, Joab says, David, I I would hope that your people increase a hundredfold and that you live to see it with your own eyes. But why would you do this? It's clearly a wrong thing to do. Joab's implication is that it would be wonderful for David to be king of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israelites and Judeans, but that counting them is wrong. So let's just pause here. What is wrong with counting? What's the problem with counting? (laughs) Seems strange to me. You know, when I started teaching here in 2016, this college had six students. Just six. We now have 26 and a half I'm not sure if you cut that this way or this way, but 26 and a half full-time equivalents made up roughly of 60 people. Now, that's really exciting, and it feels very different around here. For one, I'm speaking a little bit louder than I did when there were just six people here. But it's more populated. Is that number a measure of the success of this college? Is it bad for us to keep close track of our numbers and hope that they're growing and increasing. When I joined Facebook in 2007, I had one friend. The one friend that I started with is now my wife. In fact, she was the reason that I joined Facebook, as you may suspect. I, uh, a friend of mine said, I said, how do I get in touch with this, with this girl? And I was in the UK and he said, Facebook. I said, what's Facebook? He said, you can, get, you can get in touch with people. And I was like, sweet, where do I sign up? Now, I checked yesterday for the purposes of this sermon illustration, I assure you, and nothing other than that. And I was surprised to discover that I now have 760 friends. <laughs> it's a little bit concerning, actually. But is that number a measure of my friendliness? Is it a measure of my success at being a friend? When I was younger, I had thousands of beautiful hairs. No, that's not going to (laughs) work. Now, you could ask me. You could ask how many friends, how many hairs, how many dollars, uh, how many publications, 
how many countries or how many degrees? And I could tell you that each of those questions at some point in my life has been understood by me as a measure of my worth. What's wrong with counting? Well, in a nutshell, the greater the number, the less we tend to trust in God. This is human nature, and it's a problem. I wonder what it is for you as you sit there thinking about how much hair I used to have. What is it that you find yourself measuring? What is it that you measure regularly? Because there's a voice inside you that says, this is the measure of my worth. This is the measure of my identity. I've got to do better. I've got to increase this number. Be careful. Be careful with that because the greater the number, the less we tend to trust in God. You see, the problem with David's census is its purpose. The number that's reported to him in verse 9 is the number of males of a fighting age. That's what comes back. It's not exactly what he asked for, but that's what comes back. The census is a measure of military power, the sword-wielding capacity of men in Judah and Israel. And we know from Israel's history that God has told them again and again that that doesn't matter. That's not what matters in battle. What matters is that the Lord your God is with you. So we have that story, for instance, in Judges 7. I don't know if you remember it, but Joshua has 32,000 fighting men. And he's asked to cut them back and cut them back until he gets down to 300. That's less than 1% of what he started with. And then he goes to battle and wins because God is making a point. Numbers don't matter. But verse 4 states that the king's word or decision remains firm, remains hardened. It's actually the same word that's used of Pharaoh's heart back in the Exodus. It's hazak. It's hardened against Joab's counsel. So David resists Joab's counsel and the census goes ahead. It takes almost 10 months. It's a lot of counting. The counting goes ahead and so does the judgment. Now it may bother some of us that David's sin, David's decision, makes life hard for everyone. But as one scholar has observed, it may be a helpful way to think of David's census as a magnifying glass held in the sun, a, sing a single provocation that focuses the nation's widespread sin into an easily identifiable beam. I like that image. David's sin in taking the census shows a lack of trust in Yahweh, but the people's sin, as ever, is a lack of trust in Yahweh. It almost seems fitting, too, that David's sin is counting each and every person in Israel, because each and every person in Israel and Judah is responsible for the judgment that's coming. And what form does God's judgment take? Well, throughout history, again, it tends to take the form of three things, plague, war, and famine. And you can look up lots of examples of each. Plagues in Numbers 11 and 25, foreign oppression or war, all the way through the book of Judges, every time the people distrust or mistrust 
or trust in another god. And sometimes with famine, as in 2 Samuel 21, which is quite recent compared to this text and in 1 Kings 17. But these three, plague, war and famine, they're very often the consequences that Israel faces for turning away from Yahweh. And they're spelt out back in the covenant that was made between Yahweh and his people. And God sticks to those stipulations. He warned them in those very terms. The prophets then hearken back to the law. And Jeremiah 24, for instance, 24.10, he says, I will send sword, famine, and pestilence among them until they're utterly destroyed from the land I gave to them and their ancestors. Ezekiel 5. One, this is an interesting little story where Ezekiel shaves off his beard and divides the hair into three parts and then uh, strikes one third with a sword and says, a third of you will die in war. Uh, he scatters a third to the wind and a third of you will be scattered. And he gets out his lighter and sets fire to the other third and says, a third of you will die in the city by famine and pestilence and and the destruction of the city. And he tucks a few hairs in his belt and says, there'll be a few of you left over. Very comforting. But we see these three forms of punishment throughout Israel's history, plague, war, and famine. And at least in this instance, David gets a choice, right? I don't know if that's good or bad. But David is, is, is instructed to choose his poison, if you like. David gets to choose his punishment. Now, I remember a time, the last time that my dad decided to discipline my three brothers and myself. I've got three brothers. We're all teenagers. We're all getting a bit big for him to be, you know, giving us a smack on the wrist or leg or wherever. And on this occasion, I can't actually remember what we did wrong. But we'd all done something wrong together. And he said, right, line up outside the bathroom. He had a ruler in his hand. And he said, come in one by one. And so my older brother went in. The other three of us are at the door. Uh, and my dad, I think with a bit of a smirk, says, front or back? And he's like, front. And then one or two? One. Slap. He comes out with a smile on his face. I was next. Same thing. Front or back? One or two? Then Matthew, my next brother. Then Pete, bit of a joker. Goes in last. Front or back? I don't care, whatever you like. One or two? Two, thanks. And we're all listening at the door. That was the last time. The strange thing was, Dad let us choose, make some choice there. And it's, it's stuck in my mind. David here, he gets to choose his punishment, which is very odd. It doesn't happen very often in the Old Testament. And David's sometimes criticized for choosing a plague rather than something like a war that he maybe stood better chances at. But there is something admirable, I don't know if you noticed, or wise, about David's choice. Can you see it there in verse 14? As David puts it, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into human hands. David throws himself on the mercy of God. Famine could be terrible, uh, depending on those who, how those who are starving react to being so hungry. War can be terrible, depending on the cruelty of the enemy. But a plague is God's doing. It's up to God when it starts and stops. So David commits himself and his people into God's hands. 
because God may yet show mercy. And he does. God tells the angel who's bringing the the plague, stay your hand, stop. And it's interesting that word uh, in verse 17, God changed his mind. He relented concerning the calamity or the destruction or the evil that he was bringing upon the people. When that, that verb is used 40 times of God in the Old Testament, but it never means that God is realizing that he's done the wrong thing. It's the same verb that can be used of human repentance. But with respect to God, it's, with, with humans, it's always about realizing that we have done the wrong thing. With God, it's always showing mercy. He relented. He steps back. He says, that's enough. It's always about humans not being able to handle what they deserve. And God is merciful because he knows we can't handle justice. You see, what's fair would break us. What's fair would break us. So the next time you're tempted to cry out, not fair, in the same breath, you probably need to cry out, thank you. Because we can't handle justice. And it's a good thing that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. There are two ingredients here, if you like, in this passage that are required for us to move on. There is divine mercy and there's human repentance. But the divine mercy always comes first. Always. Mercy always comes first because it's always on offer. Always. And it's always on offer because... It's God's character. It's who God is to be merciful. God is merciful. And yet, there is a price to be paid for sin. Our rebellion, our resistance, our our lack of trust in God, it always has consequences. David knows this. I don't know if you remember, but his own mistakes, his affair with Bathsheba led to them losing that child. And at the end of our, reason, our reading, sorry, when Arauna offers David everything, he says, you can have the land, you can have the threshing floor, you can have the oxen, you can have whatever you need here to make a sacrifice to make this plague go away. David, maybe surprisingly, says, no. No. That is too easy. It's too easy. In verse 24, David says, No, but I will buy them from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that which costs me nothing. No, I'm not going to take the path of least resistance and just push on. No, my actions have consequences. Israel's actions have consequences. And there is a a price here to be paid when we misplace our trust. I don't know about you, but that's not my tendency. (laughs) My tendency, I know I screwed up. I know I said words that hurt someone. I didn't obey the prompting of God, which I knew was clear. I acted selfishly. But if I can just pretend that none of that ever happened and kind of just press on, it might just all go away. Mm -mm. It won't. My friends, please don't offer to God that which costs you nothing. 
Did you notice David's remarkable prayer in verse 17? I alone have sinned. I alone have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and my father's house. It's a remarkable prayer because we know as the readers that that's not what happened. None of this was David's fault. It wasn't really David's fault. The reader knows because the narrator told us right back at the beginning of the story, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he prompted David to take a census. Here is David accepting responsibility for the sin that brought God's judgment. Here is David using the image of a shepherd who loves his sheep. Here is David asking God to place the penalty for sin upon his shoulders, his alone. Here is David taking upon himself the guilt, the mistrust, the broken covenant of an entire people. Here is David, a man after God's own heart. And here is David's descendant, Jesus, the good shepherd. who takes upon himself the sin of the world, the weight and the burden of your wrongdoing and of mine. This is the last chapter in the books of Samuel. And it points to Jesus, whose sacrifice is the last word on the mercy of God. Are you grateful this morning? Are you thankful then don't offer to the Lord that which costs you nothing. Amen.